All right. Well, I am glad to be here, and I think I'm glad to be up here, but that's, I don't, I don't know entirely. It's one of these interesting things because I love to teach, and I love God's Word, but I don't have a lot of experience teaching God's Word. <laughs> I, I teach, I think I teach His truths no matter what I've taught. I've taught choir, and I now teach, and I taught piano, and I now teach um, incoming foster parents and adoptive parents uh, at Christian Family Care Agency. Um, And we talk a lot about Jesus and what is true about how he loves us and loves children. Um, So in that sense, I have taught God's word in that way. And I've taught it to lots of kids in children's ministry. Um, But this is different to teach women. And especially when I feel like I just want to know all the things that you know, because many of you have spent a lot more time with Jesus. And so there's this mix of feelings in me, but I'm trusting God and trusting Marsha and stepping into this anyway. Um, as a review of last week, we got to be in our small groups for the whole time, looking at Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, and then through chapter 5, verse 10, and looked at Jesus as high priest. And there were so many different things that hopefully you got to dig into. Um, but I asked the leaders if there was somebody who had shared something that maybe they would want to share with a large group. And Holly recommended Chris, Aaliyah, and Chris is like, can you, can you ask Holly what I said? <laughs> so, but that always means that it was probably the spirit speaking through Chris to Holly and now, and she is willing to share with all of us. So as a little recap, Chris is going to come up and share, she thinks, what she may have said possibly to Holly wrote it out because I don't do well just speaking off the cuff and I'm in 16 font so I'm like I don't know maybe I'll be able to see it maybe not but I'm Chris Alia I think it's better without um can you guys hear me okay uh this will tie in eventually uh something wonderful happened last April I was at a spiritual retreat when the speaker was leading us in a group prayer and urging us to search our hearts to find what we needed to confess or repent. She spoke a word picture of Christ hanging on the cross, and she told us to picture his wounded body, the open wounds, and to see us give our sin like up into his wounds. She referred to 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I racked my brain. I wasn't feeling a a conviction to confess any particular sin. But after years and years of what I had considered suffering, loss, pain, and trauma, I was left feeling confused, miserable, numb, and lost for the last three years. There must be something I needed to confess. My mind was putting, my mind was blank though, and she she mentioned the word suffering. And something about putting all your sin and suffering on his body. And this is the first time I really considered that Jesus not only took all my sins on his body, but my suffering also. Um, Surely, much of my suffering was caused by other people sinning against me, and he died for their sins too. And so I pictured myself broken, kneeling at the cross, and all the years of my suffering And I pictured that pain rising up, entering into his open gashes on his beaten body. And I imagined like this invisible stream of comfort and knowing and love flowing down 
from him over me. And this began my deeper healing, as in 1 Peter 2.4, by his wounds I have been healed. So when our small group last week read Hebrews 4.14 4, through 16, we took that little, those just few verses, and we were asked to notice what words or phrases stood out to us. And I had to fight choosing the words and phrases that seemed like the right ones, right? Uh, the ones most likely to choose. But the Holy Spirit instead drew my eye and attention very clearly to a few words in verse 15. Um, verse 15 says, and I like to read it in first person, For I do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with my weaknesses. Um, that sympathize with my weaknesses, is that is what jumped off the page for me. Um, and then I also felt him direct me to chapter 5, verse 7, even though that wasn't part of the verses we were looking at where it says that Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. That stood out to me. Um, and I looked up something on the loud crying and tears, and one of the things I read said, loud crying, like loud crying done with great emotion, clamorous screaming. Uh, that's extremely boisterous and like a wounded person emitting unearthly, like unhuman types of sounds. That I related to. Um, a wounded person making unhuman sounds at first we made me think of childbirth, right? We can relate to that. And then I started thinking of other things, um, of me wailing in agony when my son at age two almost died of a gunshot wound. Um, I remembered my innocent childlike dreams of love and marriage that were pierced through with betrayal of affairs. Um, I remember crying till no tears would come after my husband left me with four young children. I remember my screaming tantrums, ripping all of my clothes out of the closet, throwing them all over the room when my young teenager chose to leave and live with his dad in another state where I had no control to protect him. I recall lying in my dark closet, curled around my pain in a fetal position as the depression and darkness pressed in. Yes, I can relate to the ugly description of loud crying and a wounded person making non-human sounds. Um, I believe it was Dan Allender who said, those who love well walk with a limp. I love that. Those who love well walk with a limp. Suffering happens, right? Divorce, chronic pain, miscarriages, loneliness, death of loved ones, caring for ailing parents, mental illness, addictions, wayward children, Betrayal, we all have our lists. Um, now, this is where it gets to what I really thought about that God spoke to me in this. Now, isn't there a difference between comfort received from a well-intended person who's really never experienced what you're going through and then someone who's gone through exactly what you've gone through? Um, isn't there like a knowing, a knowing look in their face or a mutual feeling, a known loss together? Now, what if you are that individual who has already been through some great suffering and you've prevailed and you have scars and you've learned some deep truths about yourself and God and then evil strikes again and you hear of someone else who has now experienced the same loss that you've been through? You are now the person of support. Do you remember your pain and your loss and your suffering? That pain has changed you. It's aged you. It's scarred you. It grew you. When you reach out to comfort, it is with deep knowing, knowing in your heart. You feel, you love, you enter in deeply. The compassion and knowing is almost visceral. 
and if you are gifted, or I like to say sometimes cursed, with empathy, (laughs) you can, in a way, feel the pain that the other person is going through. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the movie Avatar, but it reminds me of that scene where the woman looks into her lover's eyes, and she's like, I see you. That's that feeling I get. And I long, you guys, I long so much to be seen and for someone else to know me. And there's something so important about Jesus knowing my weaknesses and frailty. Psalm 103.14 says, For he himself knows my frame. He is mindful that I am but dust. And then Psalm 62, or 6.2 says, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am frail. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. There is something comforting to me to know that I'm dust and that Jesus knows that I'm dust. And yet, as verse 14 says, he's passed through the heavens as my great high priest and sits on a throne of grace where he invites me, dust, to enter in and draw near with confidence. He emptied himself to become human. He walked the earth and experienced living among sinners. The Bible said he was tempted in every way, and surely he has suffered everything. Maybe not by the same circumstances, but surely the same sufferings. And on that cross, anything that he didn't happen to experience in life, he took on through the process of death. My sin, my suffering, my weakness, he knows. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. It is critically important to me that God knows me intimately. He knows my weaknesses. I crave to be known and understood and yet loved. My weaknesses, my suffering, my sin bent, my tendencies, my idols, all of these and more. God, you know, you cover and you atone for. You understand I am dust and you have so much compassion on sympathy for me. This is my comfort that I do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with my weaknesses. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Chris. So great. Could probably just be done. All right. So we're going to move in. Our passage for our homework started in verse 11 of chapter 5, but I'm a big context person, and I, I can't start in the middle of a paragraph. So we're going to go backwards just a little bit, um, because I think it's important, at least maybe just for me, and as I say that, I'm going to also let you into a little secret that I haven't prepared a great speech for you this morning. Um, I, I have been known to write speeches, and they were okay, but I was encouraged by something Billy said that she said she was quoting Bonnie on a few weeks ago, um, that when we're looking at a passage, we could let the Holy Spirit teach us about that passage instead of immediately going to Google and finding all of the great commentaries, which there are many, and they speak truth, many of them, and then there are some that are just bumbling idiots, and they don't speak truth. But you can weed your way through that, which is helpful many, many times. Or... You can sit and let the Spirit teach you and let the cross-references in your Bible lead you to more truth about the passage. And that's the journey that I have been on in this passage. And so that's kind of just what I'm going to trail you through today. Um, So if you're like, wait, did she have a point? Not really. So 
That's just the truth. Um, and I'm going to try to do this at the same time. So starting in Hebrews five, verse eight, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. I love who that felt like I was going to fall off, but it's just a crack. We're good. I love that our perfect savior learned obedience through suffering. That feels like an oxymoron. We've decided that learning and perfection are mutually exclusive things. But God, again, here shows us that they are not. And he likes to do that, where he says that we, we should be holy. He tells us to be holy. And he also tells us that he is making us holy, right? Where two things that are true can be happening at the same time. I love the example Caleb gave whenever it was in the recent past about when you have a child, you become a parent. And as you raise that child, you are also becoming a parent, right? And you're figuring out how this works and maturing in what you are. But that we can say that Jesus was perfect and that as he gave up his godness and took on human flesh, he also became perfect on earth through his obedience and through his suffering. That is just one of those like blows your mind kind of concepts. I don't entirely get it, but I think it's beautiful. And I really love that, that God gives us that example, um, that he laid down his godness in order to experience all the growing pains, just like Chris said, to experience everything that we experience here, that he was tempted in every way. And that we then get to have the honor of being partakers in his suffering because he wants us to get to experience his glory. That it doesn't have to be, oh, why am I suffering? Why are all these bad things happening to me? Wow, God, this is what happened to you. This is how you became perfect. This is how you learned obedience. I want to learn obedience. I want to become perfect. Much of my fighting against him is because I'm not perfect yet, right? And I want to be so badly but that he's allowing me to, to experience these things, these things because that's what he is doing in me is an amazing gift and honor. I was taken then to John chapter 10. For this reason, Jesus said, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Again, a bit of an oxymoron that's beautiful. It's a commandment from his father. No one made me do it. I chose to obey because that's what I knew was right and what I wanted to do. But it was my decision and I laid it down. And then in Philippians 2 verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, there's a obedience again, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you, Jesus. So then finishing the sentence in Hebrews 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I have to practice so hard saying the word Melchizedek because in the church I grew up in, we said Melchizedek. Did any of you? There are so many things that we learned wrong. We say Mary Magdalene. None of the rest of you do. We say apostle. None of the rest of you say the T. 
I don't know what was up in my church, but there are so many things that as I entered the rest of Christendom, I was like, oh my gosh, we, we were not very educated or something. So it's Melchizedek, yes. This is what I'm practicing. Um, so we've heard this name a couple of times now in Hebrews, and I'm excited to get to dig in more in a couple of weeks and, and talk about him even more and figure out what he really has to do with our story, um, our human story and the book of Hebrews. But right here, the author takes an important detour. And if you, if you were to glance in your notebook at the beginning of chapter 7, it would look like a pretty seamless transition to go from this Hebrews 5.10 into chapter 7. Because he or she, in our small group, we've kind of decided that we like the idea that it's a female writing here. But I don't know. It's, you know, it's one of those things. God knows. It doesn't really matter, but it's cool. Um, it, it would transition beautifully into chapter 7, where there's a lot more information given about Melchizedek and what's going on with that high priestly order. But right here, the author says, time out. We've got we've to stop with the facts about what's going on here. And we've got to look at something that's, that's a big deal. There's something going on in your hearts and you're not able to hear the rest of what I want to teach you because there's a block right there. And I do this all the time in my parenting where there's something pretty factual that needs to be taken care of, right? But before we can even get to that thing, we've got to pause and say, what's, what's going on in your heart right now? Do you understand that this is a heart issue that we're talking about and that you need to understand that you are loved and that you are wrong or whatever it is that we need to get to the bottom of. But I want us all, and I've tried to look at this through the lens, that this is, this is being presented as a loving parent. And I think much of the book of Hebrews is presented that way, and we've talked about that a little bit. But if you can look at this next passage too, as a loving parent trying to get to the heart of what's really going on, I think if we look at it other ways, it can be... It can, it can be fighting words. But if it can be, this is my parent who loves me and wants what's best for me always and wants to get to the bottom of what's, what's happening in my heart. So this is our text for the homework that you did this week. And I think it could be titled grow up already. I have a funny little story about my son who's seven and I teach both of my boys piano. My daughter thinks she's learning, but she just has to copy a few things on the piano and then she gets a Jolly Rancher. Um, but that's what her thing is on the boys piano lesson day. She wants to know if she can have a Jolly Rancher too. But Bennett is a perfectionist like his mother and he has a really hard time learning the piano. He hasn't had to learn very many things. He taught himself how to read at four and he just gets stuff. But he's learning the piano and it's a foreign language. And when he knows where his fingers are supposed to go and the notes that he's been playing for a few weeks, he can sight read most simple things. But this last week, he was in a new position on the piano and he had to move his hands to a different place and that means the notes are in a different place on the staff and it was a totally foreign language again. And so the first couple times through his songs, there I mean, it was ugly in my house. I don't want to tell you all the facts because it's a little scary. But there were lots of tears and there were fits and it was tantrumy and it was pretty bad. The third day, I only make my kids practice three times a week, Billy. That's pathetic, isn't it? It kind of is. The third day he practiced, he played the songs. I wasn't in the room. He walked away going, well, I just pretty much played those perfectly. Literally said that out loud. 
and I just started to chuckle from the kitchen. I said, Bennett, when are you going to learn? Do you remember how hard the first two days were? He goes, yeah, they're pretty bad. I said, when are you going to learn that it takes a little minute to learn something new? And he was walking down the hall already. He had a little toy sword in his hand and he just threw back very nonchalantly over his shoulder, maybe when I'm 10. (laughs) And I laughed like you did, but for like a full two minutes, like just like, yes, maybe when you're 10 and maybe not because I'm 37 and I throw stupid baby fits about things that I want to know right now. And I don't get it yet. And it hasn't sunken in yet. And it hasn't changed me. The knowledge of it might be there, but the, it hasn't changed my behavior because it hasn't gotten all the way in it. I haven't become fully mature. I haven't become fully complete, lacking nothing. Right. And so there's this, there's this juxtaposition of the author here wants these people to grow up and to mature, but we also are under the tutelage of this really patient, loving God who knows that we need countless reminders. Look through his word. He reminds us of the same things over and over and over because he knows we're not going to get it till we're maybe 10 or 47 or 93, right? Concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So hopefully you looked up some of these things and it might be redundant what I'm about to share with you. But the places where I found dull of hearing, here are a few of them. Uh, In Mark chapter 8, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? I'm right here in front of you. I'm providing literal bread for you whenever you need it. And he's about to tell them too, I am the bread of life that will sustain you forever. But having ears, do you not yet hear? And then... Trying to do all these things. John, in John chapter 16, Jesus says to his friends, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And that's another picture of his patience toward us, that there's so much that he wants us to know. And in my parenting, there's so much that I wish my kids would get right now, but I don't get all those things yet. Jesus does understand all of it. And he could, he's the best teacher. He could lay it out to us in a way that would be so clear, but he knows where our hearts are and he knows when we're going to be able to get it and when we're not. And if we cannot bear them now, he knows it's, it's time to be patient. In second Peter chapter three, it says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and regard the patience. There it is again of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking of them, in, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, 
as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Lord, help us not to distort your word and give us ears for what you have for us in these passages. Jumping back and forth. Are you still with me? We're back to Hebrews 5 now. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. But who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Babies can only handle milk, right? That's good and right. That's how God designed us. If we have a five-year-old who can still only handle milk, what do we know must be true? There's probably a medical issue there, right? There's, there's something genuinely wrong with this child. And that, that happens. There are people who are on feeding tubes. There are people who cannot process food. But we know that's because of something that's not normal happening in their body, right? So if that, you know, we tease our children, don't grow up so fast. Or, man, you got so tall, you were going to stick a book on your head. We don't actually want them to stop growing up. We don't actually want them to stop maturing. That would be, that would, that would be very scary for a parent. Some of you have experienced that. But we want healthy maturity to be happening at all of the right developmental times and rates. And that's what this author is saying too, that we, it is good and right to grow up and to need more sustenance, to need something to chew on, to need to process things, to get stronger muscles. And we do that by drinking the milk first. You can't bypass the milk or you won't, you'll choke, right? If you start giving babies all kinds of food, they're not going to be able to make it. But we can't, we have to go through that process of drinking in the simple truth that God has for us. But if we stay there, then we don't get to get to um, move on into maturity. So here's some passages about spiritual immaturity. First Corinthians three, and I brethren could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food for you were not yet able to receive it. That was good and right. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. And they're insinuating that that's probably not good and right for you are still fleshly for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? If we can compare ourselves, which we're not supposed to do, but if we look around and see, I'm, I'm actually not any different than the world around me, then we're not maturing in Christ, right? If we just understand all of what is happening in the world around us and on Facebook and wherever else you're seeing what's happening in the world around you, then you're not maturing in Christ. I get frustrated sometimes that I don't get like, I don't feel right in this world. And then I remember, that's exactly what God wants for me. I am a stranger here. I am a sojourner here. It's not supposed to feel really cozy and right because I'm not made for here, right? Here's a chart that I found in my study Bible. Can you see it? This was the smallest font that I used because I wanted to pack them all in here. Um, but here's a list of mature choices and immature choices. Mature choices 
teaching others. An immature choice would be just being taught. You can tell that you're maturing when you're developing a depth of understanding. Immaturity, you're still struggling with the basics. Maturity, self-evaluation. Immaturity, self-criticism. Maturity, seeking unity. Immaturity, promoting disunity. Maturity, desiring spiritual challenges. Immaturity, desiring entertainment. And I wrote ease because that's my struggle. I, I really would prefer this life to be easy. I like it that way. Doesn't make me better. Doesn't make me more mature. Mature choices, careful study and observation, and immature choice, opinions, and half-hearted efforts. Mature choices, active faith. Immature choices, cautious apathy and doubt. Mature choice, confidence. And immature is fear. And then a mature choice is feelings and experiences evaluated in the light of God's word or are our experiences evaluated according to how we feel about them. I don't have anything to say about that. It was just a good, hmm. First Corinthians chapter 14, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. I like that. It's okay to be protected from the things that are evil. It's okay to be naive and ignorant to those things. But in your thinking, be mature. Grow up so that you can make good choices. And then I'm not going to, I couldn't put the whole chapter up here, but something for you to maybe jot down and look into at home is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It just has a lot of really significant truth about spiritual maturity. My prayer as I've been knowing this morning was coming and preparing for this was just, God, show me what I should teach. And so over and over I would pray that, and then I would go and do a little more study. And in one of my flipping through, cross-referencing, I was led to Titus chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2 and verse 15 in, in the NIV, which is what I was using, it says, these are the things you should teach. So I couldn't leave this part out. Titus chapter 2 at the beginning says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Careful, ladies. Teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So this is, I think, uh, goes under that training our senses. What are the things that we're supposed to be training? At? And if you think of someone who is training for something, they're not just like casually going for a walk, right? If, when you're training, you're, you're intentionally setting a time of day most likely. You're maybe getting yourself up out of bed to do it. You're determined to accomplish something, right? And you work really hard at it and it hurts and your muscles get sore and you might have to think about what you're eating to stay energized to do that. And so many things come into play when you're training for something. And so the phrasing there, I think, is not by accident that they say training our senses to discern what is good and evil. And we do that with some work. Yes, it is through grace. 
It is always through grace. But we get to participate in that. And we get to read the Bible. We get to be around other Christians. We get to figure out how to do these things that are being asked of us to be sensible. I am not sensible on my own. I would not be pure without the Holy Spirit living in me. I would be very bitter about the work that I have to do at home. And I can get there many days. I always only ever wash the mirror in my bathroom. Seven times a day I could do it and it would still have toothpaste on it in 20 minutes. They hardly ever even brush their teeth. I don't know how it gets there. But it's there every single day, right? We can get bitter about those things. But this is the training of being kind, being subject to their husbands, so that we can be mature and, and discerning of good and evil into what God wants us to be. Then this is, I just jumped to the end of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. That's the peace that we can't do any of this without. In and through his grace, right? Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing, teaching, training. That's that same word. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It is the grace of God that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. This doesn't happen when we're dull of hearing. And we looked at that word and maybe you saw that it was sluggish and indolent. This doesn't happen when we're in that place of sluggishness. Is that a word? It takes practice. It takes training. Our flesh is drawn toward those things, the ungodly, the worldly desires. That's what our flesh is drawn to. But the power of the living God lives in us. So he can lead us to discern what is right, right? It is through his strength and energy that we mature into who he is transforming us into. Therefore, and I'm going just a little bit into chapter six because that's what our homework did, but I'm so thankful that someone is going to come in and dig even deeper next week in chapter six because this is not something I find incredibly clear, it's, but I believe that it is good. So, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, perfection, completeness. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So these things are religion, right? They're rituals and practices that the Jews had been partaking in. And some in this time period were going back to these things, right? It's what was comfortable. It's what felt familiar and tangible and safe to them. The writer wants them to leave these things behind and move on into something better, right? Something that would give them more maturity. Galatians 3.2, I would like to learn just one thing from you, Paul is saying to the Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? 
through faith, yes? And then Philippians 3, the bit about leaving the, leaving the elementary things and pressing on. He even uses the same words here. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. How would I do this so that you see what's behind? Behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. And that felt very sweet. Because I'm, I might botch this whole next section and you might think, oh my gosh, she's a wreck. God will make that clear to me. And I trust that he's going to keep, there's, there's things that we're not going to agree on in how we read and how in this moment of our lives, how we're seeing different passages but God will make that clear to you. I find that incredibly gracious that he can allow us to sit because there's mystery involved in faith, right? And that he can allow us to sit in something that's maybe inaccurate, but his spirit working in us can continue to mold. Now, when we're staunchly, this is what I believe and I'm sticking with it, then we're not allowing his spirit to stir and work in us, right? So I don't think he meant it that, eh, whatever, you can believe whatever you want. That's not what Paul's saying here. But he's saying that anyone who's seeking God's face and his truth in this, God's going God's to lead you into that truth, right? Back to Hebrews. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That first three verses of Hebrews 6, to steal another illustration from Billy, she talked about the breakers when you're at the beach and there's just the waves crashing in and you can't really get past them. So if we consider those the breakers, then this is the deep waters, right? This is heavy. And it, in the deep waters, it, it's beautiful and still and vast, but there's sharks out there and there's major storms out there. And it's terrifying. There are lots of people who will only go where their feet can touch at the beach, right? Because it's deep and dark. And what if there's something nibbling on my toe, Right? So this, is, this feels like deep waters to me. This passage makes me uncomfortable and it doesn't actually make me uncomfortable for myself. I feel very sure of my salvation, which is maybe odd because I did grow up in a place where they did not believe in eternal security. And it was like a huge fear when I left that church. Um, one of the ministers said to me, but make sure you don't find a place that preaches once saved, always saved because that gets dangerous. And they would be so disappointed in me now, wouldn't they? <laughs> But, but I do believe that once God has you, he has you. So this is, so are we talking about people who haven't actually fully believed in Jesus and put their faith in Christ? I think that's what many commentaries would say is true about this passage, that they've been around the word of God and they have heard the gospel and they've tasted, they've kind of attempted to be a part of this new thing called Christianity but they haven't actually put their faith 
in Jesus Christ. And so then they've walked away. I hate that idea because I know people who are in that moment in their life where they've been around Christianity and they know what is true about the Bible and they've even been able to proclaim it and quote it and participate in it, but they have walked away and their life looks like they're not living it. So then is it impossible for them to ever come back? I hope. I hate that. I hate that idea. And I want to say I, I don't want this to be true. But I know, too, that Jesus said this. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I know many stories of people who have said, I turned my back on God. I walked away. I wanted nothing to do with him. And he wooed me back. Barb shared that with us over the summer, that that's part of her story. Um, so, so I may be adding more confusion to your study than what you already had. But there's that tension here in this, in this section for me. But I, I do believe, especially if we go back to that deep water thing, when we, uh, Holly, thank you so much for drawing our attention to the word frapping that help means frapping, that when we are in that squall, that Jesus doesn't just come and pat us on the shoulder. Oh, I'm here to help you. You're going to be okay. He is swimming under the boat with chains, winding around four or five times to frap us in so we don't fall apart. He can't, he's not, he could. I should never say he can't. He doesn't always take us out of the circumstance that's hard and frightening, right? but he fraps us in so that we have his help in time of need, that we can receive that mercy and grace, right? And that he will, he will lead us through. So I, I cannot fully explain this passage, but I know that Jesus is my helper, and I know that he fraps us in and holds us safe when we don't fully understand or when we fear for those around us who seem to be headed toward this impossible place or already are in this impossible place. And I would say their story isn't done and that God is faithful. And, and I pray daily for redemption for those people in my life. And then for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and we saw in our homework that difference between tasting and drinking the rain, right? So this is a, a believer that drinks the rain that falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. That ground receives a blessing from God, but if it yields thorns and thistles and is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So I think obviously this could be in, interpreted saved and unsaved. The ground that drinks the rain is someone who trusts Jesus. The ground that is thorns and thistles is someone who doesn't. I think that seems pretty clear to me. But I also felt the spirit stirring in me, this idea that if that it, this could be the same human heart at different seasons, right? That there are times in my life where I have been, yes, Lord, please just drink. I want to drink in the rain of what is true about you. And then there are times where I get really snarly and these thorns and thistles and I want to shake my fist and I want to argue and I want to be, or I just am in a really ugly place that's not fruitful. And how sweet it is to me 
that God would burn off those things because it, all I did was a very brief Google search. My family goes back on both sides in farming, but I was three years old when we left the farm, so I don't have a lot of farming experience. I did just plant some Brussels sprout seeds, and they're growing. I don't know what's going to happen to them after they get higher than this, but there's, I mean, there's something there. But I don't know a lot about farming, but I did read, and I do know that they burn fields. And not even just, like, it could just be, this is the year that we're going to burn the field. Like, it may have just produced a great crop. But for the purposes of renewing the soil and getting nutrients back into the ground, they burn off what was there and they start over. And this could also be that idea that we need God's discipline and correction and instruction. And so if you're finding this passage to be uncomfortable because it's a mirror into oh man, I have a lot of thorns and thistles growing in my heart right now. This is not the end for you. This is not saying you're going to burn in hell. You are not done. If you have trusted Jesus, then he gets to come in and it hurts. Fire is hot and painful, right? It hurts to have those thorns and thistles yanked away um, or the ground to be tilled and, and dug into and you dig up things that you didn't even know were still there. And man, that's frustrating, thought I was through this thing, but how sweet on the other side to have soil that is full of nutrients and so much healthier for growing vegetation that is useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. Whose sake might that be? Anyone that you have influence over is going to benefit from God tilling the ground that is in your heart and digging up those things and burning away what is yuck. This is not the end. You are still here. And Jesus is all about redemption. And I'm going to steal the beginning of verse 9 from next week's assignment. Because there's a big but that can't be avoided right here. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So we can rest assured that if we trust Jesus, he has a really, really great plan for us.